and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Jude Rogers. If you're old enough to remember Cold War Mark I, as I am, having been a child of the nuclear war-obsessed 1980s, you'll remember the idea of civil defence. This involved plans to protect people in emergency situations in the face of man-made disasters. And no, it wasn't just about building shelters out of mattresses in your living room, protect and survive style, while the siren from the beginning of Frankie Goes to Hollywood's Two Tribes blared in your ears. It was also about the principles of disaster prevention and mitigation, response and recovery. And it required people to imagine what a nuclear war would be like and how people could survive it. While the atomic threat still looms large in our lives, another man-made disaster is just as pressing, climate change. But how do we imagine what that will be like and how we can survive that? Can ideas from civil defence in the mid to late 20th century help us to navigate our equally terrifying present? To tell us more, I'm delighted to welcome Dr Matthew Grant, a senior lecturer in history at the University of Essex, a Cold War historian and author of the forthcoming book, The Cold War and the Remaking of British Citizenship. Thanks for joining us today, Matthew, in our rather appropriately named bunker. You know, I want to ask you what you think of its suitability for any future man-made disasters, but I don't think it'd be that great. Anyway, welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. So you've read so much newspapers and books, plumbed the depths of so much research about people's responses to the idea of nuclear war and how people try to imagine, as you say, the unimaginable. Could you summarise for us what these ideas were like straight after World War II and and what happened in 1954, which has changed people's ideas? Just after the Second World War, I think people were confronted by this completely new weapon, the atomic bomb. They'd read the newspapers, heard the radio, you know, heard the radio reports about the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and that sense that the, these bombs ended the war, killed countless people. So I think people had to try and imagine what that would be, what, what would it be like if there was a third world war. I think people really struggled to do that. Um, and I think people had really a couple of ways of imagining it. One was to think, oh my God, if there's a war, the world's going to end. And that, and that was very, very common. There were, there were um, lots of sort of stories in newspapers and things which, which emphasised it in that way. The other way of looking at it would be to say, well, actually, it can be coped with. And for people in Britain after the Second World War, the main reason they thought about that was actually by thinking about the bombs that they'd lived with through the Second World War. And so actually, if you were in the middle of London in 1946-47, you would see the, the physical scars of that war mm. all around you. And I think it was very hard for people thinking about what a future war would look like without applying it to their lived experience of what just occurred. And so when the government said to people, well, actually, we can cope with this, we can minimise casualties, we can have civil defence and we can rescue people um lots of people thought yeah we, we can do that and i think there's a different aspect as well with the british national story which is familiar to us all and it still has great political import of britain standing alone in the second world war and resisting hitler really fed into it because there were there were lots of people like we fought hitler we can fight the atomic mm. bomb it's like they're not quite the same thing <laughs> and, I, and i think so there's, there's loads of bits like that and i think part of it as well is that the British experience of the Second World War was, you know, bombing was very different from, say, the German experience. You know, the scale of enemy, att- you know, bombing attacks on Germany were significantly heavier than Britain ever experienced. So there's a whole weird imaginative process that goes mm. on. You've written fascinatingly about this British spirit and this coming together of the idea of civil defence and how it will work. But in 1954, then, there's the 
and you have the tests that, you know, travel around the world. And, you, that, that, and again, you write about this in terms of the news broadcasts and the way people, you know, kind of realise, you know, the potential of the bomb. Yeah, in 1954, when the Americans test the, the hydrogen bomb, the thermonuclear weapon in Bikini Atoll, and then the radioactive fallout um, sort of um, infects the Japanese fishermen and becomes a big story. That's this is when, like 82 miles away or something. You yeah, were huge, yeah, yeah, out of the blast, downwind. Yeah. Um, and I think that's when it becomes clear, because the hydrogen bomb had been developed over the previous few years, but it was those te- that test, really, that made people realise that this is a bomb that could destroy an entire city. And there was a famous uh, news conference in New York, which was reported around the world, where the, um, they were asked, how big could this bomb be? And he said, we could destroy the whole of the New York City metropolitan area, one bomb. And so any sense that you might have had that this could be survived, that you know, men and women in uniform could dig you out of some rubble and give you a hot cup of cocoa and everything mm. would be okay, is gone. And I think that obviously was immensely shocking for lots of people. And that sense that not you know not only that so if you live in a big urban area then you have no hope for survival, but more than that if you lived in the rural countryside you would equally be in danger because of radioactive fallout. Mm-hmm. And I think as the fifties go on, people begin to realise that there's nowhere in Britain that's safe. You're either you know in Britain one of the most highly urbanised countries in the world. You're in cities. If you're out of cities, well if you're in the eastern half of the country outside of cities you're probably near a big air base that's also a target yeah. area or you're in a rural area which may so basically unless you live in sort of the highlands or the sort of mid wales there's a sense that there's no way you're going to be i live in mid wales i live five five miles from the sas base so i we're, we're in deep trouble <laughs> that's, it, that's it there's nowhere that, there's no nowhere that you know in the there's nowhere that's not a target area yeah. because if, if there's no people there there's a military installation so I find it fascinating thinking of this in relation to, you know, us now imagining the unimaginable of climate change. How do you think we are doing that in 2023? I think it's really, really hard. I think you could, I think people are aware that there is a danger waiting, waiting us. I think there's the scientific evidence and the expert advice we all get that, that there's, there's, there's dangers and we can kind of understand that. But I think if you, when when you see in the newspapers and you know the, the two two degree target etc., what I think it's very hard to then think what that might mean for us in our everyday life, uh, in terms of more extreme weather and so on, rise, rising tides. But what does that what does that mean in terms of individual change? Mm. I mean, it's you know it's hard for us to imagine what the rising sea level was actually look like for for real people, and so I think that's one one part of it. The other part of it, I think, is it's really hard. I think for some people to think that what they would do as an individual might make it, might make what difference that makes. You know, I think people, you know, think, well, I can recycle, I can cut down on my meat, and so all these things that you know, and cut down my air travel, all the things we should be doing, and we need to be doing. But then there's, I think, a lot of people have the nagging bit of my doubt. But when, you know, when when people in Texas are just carrying on or increasing mm. the things, and then that makes that makes no difference. What parallels, um, you know, can we draw between, you know, the, um, the rise of interest in civil defence, um, those early days, um, you know, after the Second World War, which obviously came backwards and forwards over the years, you know, with what's going on now? I think that sense of people being able to look around them and see the real difference that some things can make. 
I think, you know, with civil defence, the hard thing that people who cared about civil defence had, especially after 1954, was convincing people that they might make a little bit of a difference on the very edge. So civil defence argued that, yes, obviously, if you're in the middle of London, there's not much chance of survival. But if you're in, you know, Romford or, some, or Croydon, on the edge of that blast zone, someone, you, you, you might be able to be saved. And I think that sense of individuals being able to see the differences i think can make a difference you know so for example if you're in if you're in london trying to trying to recognize that the reason the thames barrier exists is to protect against mm. t- uh, rising tides yeah uh, or tidal surges as it were and i think that sense of you know and, and things the environment agency might might try and do and i think there's that sense of connection with the natural world a bit i think really really helps and that sense that individuals can do something that, that's not just despairing. Because mm. I think the other, I suppose the other big parallel with the Cold War is that individuals didn't feel they could do much. I mean, you could protest against nuclear weapons, but I think, which people obviously did. But I think even in the 1980s, there was a, there was a worry that actually the big decisions are obviously being made in Moscow and Washington. And if you're protesting in London or Greenham Common, then actually that, it's got a limited utility and it's really noticeable that the big when the protests in britain were at their height were at moments when big decisions were being made mm. so in the early 60s and late 50s it was when britain was deciding how their nuclear deterrent would operate in in britain in the 80s it was about cruise missiles and mm. things like that so actually real things that people felt they could make a difference about sparked these big global things and i think now people have to have a sense of what they can do In some ways, you know, it's useful to think about, obviously, the lessons of history and how these can be applied. And I find it interesting that your ideas of imagining the future maybe say a lot about the time you grew up as well. So um, you're about the same age as me, so mid-40s. You grew up in the 80s when the bomb was just this insidious part of popular culture. I've written about the film Threads um, and the film uh, Where the Wind Blows, obviously based on Raymond Briggs's graphic novel. There's this idea of... Um, nuclear war kind of infiltrating pop culture and being um, exploding pop culture, whether it be for black comedy or in the case of threads to try and tell people this is what it's going to be like and try and affect, you know, politicians and policy. It's interesting thinking of that in relation to some of the things that are going on today. I was thinking about the film Don't Look Up, about climate change, you know, the various, you know, Hollywood disaster blockbusters. Mm -hmm. How important do you think, you know, storytelling is um, to, you know, teach people about um, you know, the, the threats that are facing us? I think it's absolutely central because I think we can only construct the a sense of the future from the narrative that are around us. And I think what films such as Threads did so well was to really articulate and look in, try and imagine a future that was horrific and what it would be. Because I think in the Cold War, there was a big emphasis, this protest to try and stop a war ever happening. You know, there was... You know, there was a binary question between whether that if there was it had to be peace and if there was a war, that was it, it brought an end. And actually what Threads was amazing at was arguing, no, actually, if th- this happens, it's not going to be the end. And that's worse. Mm. You know, and that's the true horror of Threads, isn't it? It's actually mm. that you're not going to die, that you might survive. Yeah, the bomb have... goes off like 45 minutes into the film and then the film goes on forever. Forever, <laughs> about how horrific it is. And I, th- and I think the key thing is to have really good stories and really convincing stories that tell that and that don't just fall back on what can be a sort of 
just a sort of disaster trope. Because I think actually you can you can make a sort of generic thing about oh there's a terrible disaster. Don't worry, the hero averts it, and then say. And actually, you can make that about the nuclear future. You can make that about climate change. You can make it about asteroids. You can make it about anything mm. you want. But, that, but actually, to really think about this idea of what the future would look like when this, if 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 climate change, you know, continues and and, and go, you know, and, and the landscape shifts so much, mm. that's that's the problem. I think. So, civil defence was, as you said, was seen as being about patriotism, community spirit after the Second World War, as you said. But it became something to be mocked as well, didn't it? It was about governments, and I'm quoting you here, presenting an impression of preparedness in order to convince the public that they would be able to save lives in a nuclear war and stiffen resolve to face any international crisis. You know, famously, the, you know, well-known protect and survive leaflets and television adverts were, they were leaked, they were shown on um, Panorama on television. You know, they got used in, as I mentioned earlier, kind of um, amazing remixes of Frankie Goes to Hollywood songs. But there was this idea that any idea of civil defence was ridiculous. Where do you think the British public is now with, you know, thinking about how the government are responding to climate change or directing us to think about climate change? I'm not sure the public would have a great deal of trust in any sense of the government having a deep-seated, long, long-term plan. And I think at the moment, the government gets really is really caught between loads of competing policy agendas and I think really fo- struggles to focus on the future. I mean, perhaps the, the most complex one is, is nuclear power, which some people would argue is is, is one of the ways that, that, that nations can try and deliver a sort of energy, energy sources that are carbon-free. Obviously, the idea that they are sustainable or, mm. or, or, or environmentally friendly is, of course, is, is immensely controversial, which of course they're not. They're neither of those things, and I think they there's a real struggle to imagine to to think about them in that sense. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you've got the government. I think is absolutely enthralled, really, to groups that well, essentially we can. I suppose we can call them nimbys. You know, the idea that who, who do not want wind farms near them, do not want these big infrastructure projects that can actually help deliver clean energy because they're spoils the view well you know if, mm-hmm. if things carry on you're not going to have a view <laughs> yes so i think there is there there is that and i think that's really difficult and 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 i think there's so many different things that get caught up you know i think we could all probably we'd all probably like to see more renewable more green energy uh, more sustainable transport infrastructure but then just saying well that means we should have more nuclear power stations more onshore wind farms and hs2 mm. is a policy leap there's a lot, lots of other things going on. And there's also um, more of a drive for consultation with the public in, you know, um, when, when these um, initiatives, directives are being rolled out. And, you know, people quite often think about, yeah, as you say, their backyards rather than the, you know, longer term issues. It's uh, it's something that uh, people have to, you know, work with and fight against quite often. You know, you mentioned how, this, you know, the signs of war like bomb sites, you know, were obviously in Britain for, you know, quite a long time after the Second World War. And they could have reminded people of war and the survival of war. But what, what do you think our equivalents are today in, in relation to climate change? I think there's, I suppose a lot of these sorts of sites are, are hidden. But we do see them. I mean, like big landfill sites and things and things like that. I can't, I can't remember exactly what it is, but if you ever drive down the M4, there's a bit where you come over here and there's this, this huge landfill site, and you just see all these seagulls piling on it. And that and that sense of of resources being sort of piled into that, I think you do see these sort of scarred areas. And I think it's really noticeable as well in cities. 
I think cities have got so much better mm. for that. And there, there seems to be a more coherent use of space in some cities. And I think that's one of the answers as well, I think, um, in terms of housing and in terms of people being able to, um, you know, live more sustainably. Mm. Um, but I suppose, you know, but then again, there's just these aspects of life that I suppose we see every day and we don't really think of, you know, you know motorways, airports that are just, mm. they're just there and we don't, and, and they're just an ordinary part part of life and obviously i'd love to say so what's the answer and, and you know kind of obviously that's not something for you it's for the you know the, the policy makers on a global scale to talk about this obviously there are connections between you know the atomic threat and you know kind of um climate change you know in, in that sense as well you know same countries that you know there are concerns about etc cetera, etc cetera. in this world where the climate crisis and the atomic threat are being thought about in relation to you know some of the same world powers you know how has that made you think about your work you know particularly with how relevant some of it is to our present situation it's a tricky one because i'm a historian for me it's about this link and how we can try and get people to think about the world around them to think about changes that they might make in their own lives or their local communities that might make might give them a, a more of a sense of a sustainable future now that might that's so that's on the one hand can be individual recycling more or yeah. whatever you know but actually I, I was thinking more people who live on live in say a coastal area being aware of the world around them so for example if you go to the anywhere pretty much anywhere on the in the east coast of Britain, there'd be a massive concrete seawall mm, yeah. that was built in the last 50 or 70 years from the 50s onwards. And that's designed to protect them. And, and I think that's that's that realisation that that's not a natural landscape. It's yeah. a man-made landscape that's designed to defend things. And I think that sense of realising that that's still very fragile mm. and that there's work to go that has to go on there and, I th and one of the things I think is interesting I think the conversation is somewhere like the Netherlands might be quite different when obviously you know those sea defences protect most of the country yeah if you look at Britain and the rest of Northern Europe as a place that's actually very closely connected across that sea mm. um, there's, there might be a slightly different uh, way, way of thinking about it Obviously, there are movements now like, um, you know, Extinction Rebellion that, you know, have clear parallels with protest movements in the past. You know, there may be assumptions that there are similar kinds of people who, you know, were linked to CND who are now in that. Not always, you know, completely correctly. You know, I wondered if there were any lessons that you've learned through your work that could, you know, help inform the work of, you know, people who are environmental um, campaign groups or protesters. I suppose, ironically, that these they're the people who are most likely to be really engaged and understand uh, the threats facing people who are. And I think there's a, and I think the, the links between, say, Extinction Rebellion and people like CND are that activism and an attempt to convince others is a way of coping with the future, a coping with that mm. uncertainty. It's a way of you becoming master of the situation but someone who is actually not letting the situation happen to you is, is activism in its most literal sense and also both cnd and extension are actually quite broad-based groups that yes. bring a lot of different people together who might not typically be involved i would have probably encouraged those organizations to to think about how other people think about the future if you know what i mean because i think just sometimes just giving people the information isn't enough there's so many competing claims mm about expert advice, which I think is very hard for people to 
you know, we're not, most people are not experts on this. Therefore, it's very hard to filter out what is the most important thing. And everyone, I think, filters out certain things that suits their own lifestyle and, and the choices. So I think that's really, really hard. But I think there's such a lack of trust in the idea that big infrastructure projects can help the environment and aren't, and, and that rather than the environment just being used as a sort of extra justification for a massive sort of political or, or industrial project. I think that's the problem, mm. isn't it? Is that it's very easy for people to say, oh, we're going to do all this multi-billion pound building projects that's going to tear up huge parts of the country, but it's for the environment. Yeah. Trust in government is such a massive part of this, obviously. Trust in national government, regional government, local government, which is probably a subject for a completely different oh, yeah. podcast. Thank you so much, Matthew, for being here in the bunker today. Very welcome. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe. Give us reviews on your favourite podcast app and spread the word by telling your friends. You can also support The Bunker on Patreon for as little as £3 per month. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how making a small contribution gets you lovely merchandise plus early editions of the podcast and more. Thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Jude Rogers. The producer was Kasia Tomashevich, with audio production by me, Jay Bailey. The lead producer is Jacob Jarvis, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>